Hello, good evening. Um, my name is Chelsea O'Brien and I'm one of the assistant curators here at ACME. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered. I pay my respect to their elders, past and present, and the elders from other communities who may also be here today. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome you to this very special Art Plus film event, which is, in, which is presented in partnership with the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art as a parallel program to their exhibition, Dwelling Politi Poetically, Mexico, a case study. Tonight, we are joined by Mexican artist Diego Ramirez and ACA's public program curator, Annabelle Lacroix. Diego is an emerging multidisciplinary artist and writer who works with video, pictures and gallery-based installations. His practice explores the legacies of colonial, colonialism in visual culture, the rhetoric of the image and the, and the concept of terror as a response to the other, often seeking to reconfigure vernacular archives and popular images that embody these themes. Annabelle is, a, is Acker's curator for public programs. She's worked on local and international projects with the Melbourne Festival and Liquid Architecture amongst, amongst others. She is also a freelance curator and writer with experience across independent organisations, institutions and universities. Most recently as a research assistant um, at the Victorian College of the Arts on the project The Cultural Econ Economies of the Artist Run Initiative. Thank you for joining us tonight. And we look forward to see you, seeing you again when Art Plus Film returns in June. What an ending. <laughs> um, welcome, everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here tonight for Art Plus Film. And I'd like to thank uh, Chelsea and Acme for hosting us and uh, welcome Diego Ramirez. I would also like to um, acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we meet tonight and recognize that um, they're the ongoing custodians um, and that land was never ceded. So we just saw three videos by Jago. Uh, the first was My Superstar. Yep. Then we saw an axolotl smile um, and then towards the, and then post postcard exotica, sorry. And these three uh, works are from 2014, 15, and 16. Yep. Um, and we will use these three works as a way of talking about um, Diego's practice more broadly. Um, so to start with, um, I have prepared some questions. Um, in your work, you're, you explore colonialism and your work draws on lots of different references from film history, but also um, advertising and found footage um, and lots of different popular culture references as well. And with these three works, we can see how the first one is, has a very pop feeling and then progressively through the screening, it became a lot more noir, let's say, in general. And it's also important to say that these videos were also part of exhibitions um, at Mars Gallery in 2015 and 17. Yeah, um, it's the same year, it's 14, 15. No, 15, 16. 
use the, use the mic. No, you were right, actually. Yeah. 14, 15, 16. Yeah, sorry. It's <laughs> more confusing. And we can see, as we can see in the videos, there's a big shift between these works. Um, can you tell, a bit, tell us a bit more about how you conceive of that shift from pop to noir in your work? Yep, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Annabelle, for um, curating me into this event, and Chelsea for making it happen so beautiful, beautifully. And thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking about it as I was watching the videos, how there was a shift towards um, that very bright, glossy aesthetic towards um, the umbral, as the event is called, um, that pitch dark, or approximating that pitch dark shadow. And there is actually a very specific moment that I can trace that shift. And it was while I was researching Postcode Exotica, I was reading this book called um, Text Mex, which is an awfully written book by a um, Chicano academic called William Nerichu. And he has the most annoying voice that you can read, but um, he says these are actually quite interesting. Um, and the way he was discussing Mexicans, because that's what the book is about, like the textuality of the Mexican in visual culture, he was, the, the language that he used always made reference to um, the Mexican as a creature from the shadows. And so if you think of these stereotypes, as for example we've seen in the videos, and if you think of the idea of what is a Mexican, they're always occluded by something, say either the sombrero, or they're always looking for a shadow, or you know, it's kind of, they want to go to sleep somewhere, so they go under like a tree. And, um, so really connected to that sense of, um, yeah, I suppose the, the gothic, <laughs> The Gothic stereotype of the Mexican is this, this kind of creature. Um, so yeah, if that's an answer. Yeah, and <laughs> trying to draw also connections between the two videos, there's a recurrent motif, which is the one of the latest mask. Mm. Um, can you talk a bit more about the use of that prop in your videos? Yeah. Um, well, I guess the stereotypes work very much um, in the same way as a mask, in the sense that they, when, when you get placed in a, um, say in a dialogue between two people, and, or say if I'm sitting here and you have this idea of, like, if that, that's a Mexican, the thing that we're mediated by is sort of like a mask, and there's no way for me to remove it, it's just, in intercultural communication, you just get placed um, this sign on your fucking face. You know, it's like it's always there, and it doesn't matter, and you can take it off. And, and what I like about it in video is that you get this sense when you see someone with a mask in a video, you get the sense that it's hollow because you can't see the interior. So it's like you get consumed by it. Mm, and yeah. you can't see the eyes, or the mask is really thick. Um, yeah, 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 you can't see through. It has like no identity. It's mm. just the mask. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, like uh, as I was watching the video again, I suppose you could connect it with, um, uh, which I mean, it's, it's the thing that gives like makes my head spin with 
say the idea of um, cultural heritage, because I feel it's something that you can't actually connect to, and like we just make the meaning of what is culture among ourselves. But then, then I was, I was looking at those rituals with masks and kind of all the ceremonies, and I was thinking like, oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's something about the way I grew up, like looking at masks that, you know, mm. just bleeds out. But it's, you. Yeah. Um, and we talked about also how these stereotypes are, have quite a long history, and that goes beyond the colonial era and how. Um, uh, people from the South especially were also um, imagined, let's say, in medieval time, already through the character of the monster. And that's something that uh, comes throughout your work. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your interest in, in the other and the monster in that history? Yeah, absolutely. There are um, two key moments um, that I'm interested in. One is the medieval... Um, there's this compendium of monsters called um, the Monstrous Races, which were, um, they originate in antiquity with like Greek travelers going to foreign places. And so they will encounter strange things, things that they couldn't understand. And they will come back home with stories of unicorns and cyclops and people with uh, dog heads. Um, and that um, bled into the medieval period, so you, that's where you find all these pictures. The, the point where I become interested in this is that um, if you look at Columbus' diary and early maps, they, he actually believes that him and early colonialists believed that um, the new continent was inhabited by those monsters. They, they thought, like, oh, we found them. And so you look at his diary, and he's reporting sirens and all this incredibly wild stuff. And uh, there's this passage that says, uh, cannibals with dog head, no, what? cannibals with the nose of dogs? And just this incredibly wild, like, what the fuck are you talking about, Columbus? You know, it's like, um, so yeah, that's one. And the other one, which actually happens in the video, is um, if you think about uh, the devil, that's actually the first other, so all the racial conventions that eventually uh, Western culture attributed to the racial other actually originate in demonology. So that's why you see all those demons. So for example, the, the, the idea of the predatory um, beast that is um, corrupting uh, the... Uh, wholesome wife that actually gets translated quite often to, you know, Mexicans. Um, and it's the same with the vampire. So, if, sorry, I'm just, that, that's a bit of a... Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, so with the vampire, that's, that's Nosferatu, to the first film uh, of Dracula, which was illegal. They didn't get the rights for it, so it was lost for a while. But... Um, so when you see that Nosferatu, it's actually informed by anti-Semitic stereotypes. And then the next film that came, that was very big, was the one with Bela Lugosi, like the stereotypical Dracula. And so that actually was fashion on the Latin lover, because at the time it was the sex symbol. And so it was a shift of um, the vampire as a monster, and then the vampire as a symbol of sexuality. So that's another example of um, um, how rich 
those racial signs are, like this polysemy kind of explodes everywhere. Mm. Yep. And they're really far reaching from film to histories and diaries. And mm. so, yeah, it's such a rich and layered um, thread throughout history. And the monster is also a good way to talk about the second uh, video, which is uh, Axolotl's happiness. And the Axolotl is an animal and a mystical figure. Um, the name comes from the ancient Aztec deity Xolotl, the patron god of twins and monstrosities. It's an amphibian mark with an abnormal appearance and a set of u unique biological traits. Um, it can, it's metamorphosis and it reaches sexual ma maturity in a juvenile state and has also the capacity to regrow limbs. And Diego has written a really lovely article that you can read on Runway Magazine online, um, if you like. Um, it's an early one, so be, be gentle. <laughs> um, but it's interesting how you contextualize that figure um, in that article and, and explain how it's a very complex symbol uh, that is used across literature and fine arts uh, in Fiona Hall's work, for example, um, and pop, pop culture with Pokemon. But in this, in this video especially, you draw upon uh, Julio Cortazar's short story from 1952 um, and uh, how that uh, figure of the Axolotl is also used in literature to queer Mexican identity. Um, so could you tell us about what the animal means to you um, and how do you conceptualise this in relation to identity and nationalism? Yep. Um, well, the, the, way, the way I think about axolotls <laughs> has changed a bit recently um, because the, the axolotl is um, it's an animal... So it's a neotenic, neotenic salamander, which means that um, it's kind of like a baby salamander that didn't morph into a salamander. And they are originally from a lake in Mexico, but they're in danger of extinction. So you basically have this creature that is dying that could metamorphosize and walk out of the lake and go on living. But it refuses to, it refuses to do so. <laughs> so, um, so now I have this very self-annihilating vision of that figure, um, which when you apply... When you think about the axolotl as a symbol of nationality or national identity, um, the way it's often associated is that um, Mexico is in an infantile state like the axolotl, and um, it refuses to, to metamorphosize. So that's, the, that's the common link. And so because the axolotl has a pre-Hispanic origin, and sort of looks like a bit, like an Aztec fantasy or something, like a HBO TV adaptation of Pyramid something. Um, like, it's very easy to draw those associations. But yeah, I think there's something really dark about, because um, they look very cute, and they have this frozen smile, they're in danger of extinction, and they never do anything, and they eat each other. And they're very ambivalent creatures. They're very ambivalent, yeah, yeah. And if you look at them, like they, they, 
They don't have eyelids, so they never close their eyes. So it's like you're staring at two voids in this thing that looks like a fish, but it's a salamander. Um, and it's in prison, like a pet. But it was actually associated with like a deity, like mm. um, originally. Like. And I'm quite interested in how in that video you are yourself the performer in the in the work, um, but you're not in the other works. Um, but that connects to an earlier video of yours called Radish. Could you tell us a bit more about that position that you have as a performer and within your work? Yeah, so um, when so I made two videos, which was Radish and Axolotl, and I performed on both of them. And um, I kind of stopped doing that since. Um, the re I think the, the honest answer to that question was that um, earlier on, all my thoughts were very inwards. So I was the type of artist that was looking within, which you can obviously see. Um, so you had to embody the work? Yeah, yeah, so, so the work was... Which we had this interesting conversation about the axolotl house that um, nothing, nothing about it was stage. Yeah, it was filmed in your house. Yeah, and it was just the way... Like, that's just the way it was. Mm. It was <coughs> we can read the colours, the, the yellow and the blue and some of the things that look really staged and these little toys in some areas... Um, Yes, and you, you were saying also it, it was the washing that you actually had to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm very practical. Um, yeah. yeah, and it was like um, old natural. So, yeah, like the question is, did, did I make that work because I was living there? <laughs> you know, kind of thinking that it was like in a fish tank or, you know... Um, but yeah, so, so I think the shift, the real shift was uh, going from thinking inwards to thinking outwards. Because um, yeah, if you see an artist performing, they're making a statement about their identity. Whereas I feel, for example, with Postcard Exotica, my interest has more to do with um, visual culture and how those ideas circulate, which is very different from how I embody those stereotypes or like my existence in the world. They're like two different things. And there's quite a climax at the end <laughs> with the hook and the blood, which seems to refer to Bunyel's uh, films. And also in, Pos in Postcard Exotica, there's a scene with the eye. And I was thinking about the surrealism references in your work. Um, and also how you can bring that to the present with um, the aesthetic of the exultural and the kind of domesticated Matthew Barney look. <laughs> <laughs> Could you reflect on that, um, these references in your work? Matthew Barney on a Sunday. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> waiting for the roast to cook. Um, I, I also just thought, because um, I just wrote a text uh, for Tessa, who's sitting um, in the audience, and I mentioned zombies. Well, I mentioned a zombie once, and I said I mentioned something else that's in the video, like just this repeating. Um, sorry. Anyway, that, that's a. I was thinking out loud. Um, 
Yeah, well, surrealism was... Oh, so I, I mentioned André Breton, that's your thing, so this constant. Um, so surrealism was an interesting moment in the sense that... Um, because it came towards the end of uh, modernism, they approach uh, other cultures in quite problematic ways, but they, it was more one-on-one -on -one than previously we had seen. So for example, like Frida Kahlo was in exhibitions, surrealist exhibitions and so on. So that is one reason I'm interested in it. But um, the other one with surrealist film, which is specifically the thing that um, tickles me. Um, because they, they had this whole idea of externalizing the inner workings of the unconscious mind. They developed this vocabulary that allows you to communicate what sits um, in the shadow of things. So, so say in my work where I discuss um, the shadows cast by legacies of colonialism, um, this kind of area of um, the shadow. Uh, mining that grammar is very effective because mm. they developed a way to talk about those ideas visually. Mm, tapping, into, tapping into the unconscious and how to externalize and visualize that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so yeah, you can do the same with... Um, yeah, you can say the same thing about culture. What is the unconscious about culture? Which relates also to horror movies where there are these um, territory um, in which we deal with things that we don't want to deal otherwise. So, for, like, for example, the idea of the vampire is the zeitgeist of xenophobia that makes that figure manifest the way it does. Um, so it's like the unconscious, the cultural unconscious manifesting mm -hmm. itself. Yeah. And the history of cinema and how identity is built through um, film is something that you really took further in Postcard Exotica. And that work is uh, really a cinematic reenactment um, of a collection of found photographs. That's how it started. And it's also connected to My Superstar because this was the first work that you did where you um, made this work in response of finding um, a photograph of your grandfather. Um, but the, in Postcard Exotica, the images are um, American photographs from 1900 to 1930s that depict Mexican stereotypes. And it's quite striking how the work really focuses on the gaze um, and the Western gaze. And um, you also show how these photographs are constructed by restaging them and showing the lighting. Um, and the devices. Um, but you also re-edited this work for tonight. Um, so we saw a new version and you incorporated scenes um, <laughs> from the film Que Viva Mexico by uh, Russian avant-garde director Sergei Eisenstein that was made in, 19, in 1931. And that film is fully available on YouTube if you're interested. Um, it's an episodic portrayal of Mexican culture and politics um, with vignettes from pre-conquest uh, time to Mexican Revolution, and you describe this as an encyclopedia of stereotypes. <laughs> um, 
And um, so there's quite a interesting contrast between these archival black and white uh, documents and um, your reenactment of it. So I was, to me, it really feels like you're making the past um, present again, or you're revisiting that through, which is a key strategy in restaging. Um, so could you reflect on your decisions for keeping these photographs in the film and, and this relationship? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, the, the, the one thing I'd like to mention first in terms of um, looking through, looking at the past through the eyes of the present, I actually meant to um, these really old lenses on the camera. So we were really the, seeing... Yeah, the round um, ones. Yeah, so it looks like, um, like I have very bad taste and I just use shitty effects, but they're actually natural. So... Um, old style. Old style. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, th I think that the inclusion of the postcards was important because that's what made the video meaningful within the discourse that I wanted to place it in. Um, and so, for example, none of the actors are actually Mexican. They all come from somewhere else. Um, like, not, like, a lot of them are not even Latin American. Um, which is exactly the same thing that they did with those postcards. Um, so briefly, the history of those ones, uh, when the Mexican Revolution was happening, a lot of Americans flew there to take those pictures and sell them back, so it was like really big business. Mm. It was very profitable. But you mentioned that you, you found some of the same photographs on the internet, but had different captions, and they were referring to different... Um, peoples, not only Mexican, but with the same image. Yes, and it kills me because I didn't <laughs> save them. And I spent ages reverse Google searching, trying to include them for the new edit. And I was like, you fucking Diego, like, why don't you, you fucking keep notebooks, <laughs> dumbass? Like, um, so I still feel it burdens me that I didn't save them. Um, Good. There is, um, <laughs> sorry, I wasn't like, sure yeah, if I should go idiot. to my next question or not. <laughs> um, the other thing that's really striking in this um, film is the sound to me, and um, it's, it also sounds sort of distorted and sort of stretched. How did you came to make that sound, and what's the relationship between the sound and image in that work? Yes, yeah, so, um, the, the sound, thank you, because no one asked me about the sound. It actually comes from um, back in around that era, 1920, 1930s, early film. They used to have these big books with standard tracks. And so whenever they needed to track a scene, they would just pick it up and chuck it in there. But, <laughs> but they were, like, incredibly racist. Um, so, you know, you will see one that said, like, um, the Mexican, and it was just this Spanish guitar, like just really, really awful, dreadful mm -hmm. stuff. And so I gave um, these media tracks to the sound designer uh, Luca Dante, um, who who really did that labor of um, distorting and um, making this, updating the sound to today. And that was basically my, 
I think I think what I said to him was, I want like take these tracks and make them sound like Nicki Minaj and Anaconda, <laughs> <laughs> which he didn't he didn't do it at all. <laughs> he just kind of like ignored me and just. <laughs> And I mean, I just didn't push it because fair enough. Maybe it was a bad idea, but um, <laughs> that that was my original vision. Um, yeah. So the sound itself is actually a, um, unpacks these stereotypes further, um, and the connection unpacks that connection between sound and image. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And you mentioned how you create for this film. You um, had the characters built to create a certain response in the viewer. Can you tell us a bit more about these figures and these characters in the film? Yeah, um, so that's, that was something very interesting about, uh, which also relates to surrealist filmmaking, but um, encountering the film by Serge Einstein, if I'm pronouncing it right, um, because he developed this, he's very important to the technique of montage, supporting two scenes together. Uh, prior to him, uh, montage, which is like really, really early, but montage was like a linear chronology. And he experimented with it in such a way to create a psychological reaction rather than a time-based perception of what, was hap of what was happening in the film, which surrealist filmmaking does exactly the same thing. Um, like Unshen the loop, if I'm saying it right, Annabelle. Uh, it's more about the, the experience. And so one, th like one, one very important thing that I learned while making Postcard Exotica, and I think as an artist, it's testament that um, we, we do learn things making this shit. Like, it does take you to, does give you some insight, was that, um, yeah, I didn't realize how consistent, coherent, and self-replicating these stereotypes actually are. Which relates to what we were saying earlier, that um, yeah, you can find them in a postcard, in a film, in conversation. But just to the extent that I, I did a re-edit where I could take um, these characters doing actions that actually happened in Einstein's film, like, um, for example, those, cor those um, correlations that happen when the uh, leather guy is drinking the beer and then you see the guy drinking the coconut and I filmed them pretty much exactly the same way and I hadn't consciously done that. So that's testament to how consistent. Mm, there's a formal language of gestures and frames that, as you said, became sort of somehow unconscious um, that then you discover later on. Mm. Yeah, so that was a very important insight for me. And so, yeah, like, for example, the way, the way I frame the faces is really similar. And while I was watching that, I remember, <laughs> I remember I was at this opening once, and I was talking to this random person, and at some point she goes, like, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm from Mexico. I was like, oh, I thought you were like from some India or something. And I'm like, have you been looking at me this whole time, staring at my fucking face, wondering where I'm from? I was like, and it, it, it's just, and the interesting thing for me is that it works exactly the same as 
filming, like it's like she was filming me. It's just that intense curiosity of the facial mm. features and oh, what comes from where and what's different. And mm, that's the mask that you referred to earlier. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm quite curious in the titles of your works, you have the X in capital. Um, and that's quite interesting because there's a, a work in the current exhibition at ACA, um which features the X. Uh, it's a work by Romeo Chavez um, called Ten X's because the X was a very interesting moment in the culture of Mexico when the name of Mexico, Mexico, was going to be with an X or a J. And it was seen as this kind of... Um, sort of coming together of pre-Hispanic culture and, and Spanish culture in creating this new myth. And so Chavez in, in this work uh, is cataloging how uh, architects have used this formal um, symbol of the X throughout architecture and, and it's a huge collection. And so, but in your work, it seems very different. It seems like the capital X is more referring to the X in sex or sexuality. Why, why, why is that? Because <laughs> I'm more risque. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's really But does it? Or is it, is it just my reading? I mean, we think about the opening scene of Postcard Exotica <laughs> with the jeans and, and the way, you know, we can give a very sexualized reading to a lot of your work. The, the torso... Um, in like the naked star. doors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what's, what's the role uh, of masculinity and, 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 and sexuality in your work? Um, yeah, so... Um, the, the X I, I really like because it signifies the unknown and obviously carries that sexual um, energy as well. <laughs> um, Um, um. Yeah, it seems like it's um, going back to ideas of darkness and, and vampires and fear. The X is like a symbol of um, desire and fear together, how they kind of connected. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think, I can't remember exactly now, but I think uh, Julio Cortázar actually makes that association of the X in his short story because there is this point where he um, expands on the X of the axolotl as a signifier of its unknowingness. And that is, yeah, this creature that can transport you to a lost past that we will never be able to reach. You know, it's, it's unreachable. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also this like using the axolotl as an anchor for both answers, there is this sexual connections to the axolotl. Um, one, because it's quite phallic. Um, like if you look at it from above, it looks like a phallus. And also, um, like if you put your finger <laughs> on the... <laughs> yeah, so, so it kind of does that. Um, <laughs> And, and I mean, that, that, that's, like, it's really funny, but it's, it's actually, I have this incredible book by a sociologist who dedicates like a fair 
So because I'm young and camp, it doesn't sound very serious, but it's absolutely scholarly. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, um, and I mean, in terms of um, the, the sexual gaze, for one, it does come with the material that I'm working with, because you, you see that exact gaze in those postcards or, or ethnographic films where they, they really desire those people. And in terms of how they become intertwined, we were talking about um, how uh, fear is a corruption of desire, which is very common in colonial systems where things become degraded and corrupted and monstrous. So they, they, they come together, and the vampire is a beautiful figure in that regard, because you fear a vampire, but the idea of a vampire biting you and giving you eternal life is incredibly seductive. Mm. I think I've exhausted all my questions for Diego, so um, we'd be happy to take some questions for, from the audience if anyone has any burning um, question. Hi, Jake. <laughs> um, I, oh, great. Um, I really love the idea that there's a lot of transformation in the characters and in the language that you use within your films and your work as well. And the idea of the umbra relating to the moon and the shadow of the moon. And within these shadows, of course, there can be some more information that can be gleaned. And maybe thinking about the moment of the eclipse as a symbol as well in how the eclipse can be a darkening of light, but there will always be a shifting of that, like how the axolotl transforms and like how our cultural understanding can change as well. So in regards to art and film and yourself being an artist and also a filmmaker, being in the present, looking towards the past, how do you also see your lens maybe looking towards the future when that eclipse changes and the light comes back with a renewed sense of maybe shifting of power or hierarchies when that liminal phase changes. Yeah, um, by, by way of context, after I made Postcard Exotica, I started working with eclipses. So my recent work has been about um, colonialism as a prolonged eclipse. And I suppose that is, the, that, is a <laughs> that is a message of optimism in my sullen uh, <laughs> idea of these monsters and the end eclipse eventually moves. But um, within that idea of the eclipse, it's also if something progresses or finishes, it still carries um, all, the, all those transformations that happen while it was in place, they, they're there so that they, they remain. And that's the difficulty of those postcolonial countries that. Um, inherit all these problems um, that come from their colonial periods. Um, so all the corruption of... So you see, that that's, that's the beauty of monstrosity in, these, um, in talking about these things, because colonialism does monstrify systems. So if you think of corrupt governments, and you look at the people who are actually corrupted, like I was thinking about it on my way here. <laughs> um, like yeah, corrupt policemen have these have this haze in their eyes of like mm. they're just 
because they're working outside the system. So they are like in the shadow. It's just these, like if, if you attune your sensibilities to that presence, it's actually quite striking. Um, so yeah, I mean, if that ends, I suppose it doesn't take away all the, all the shadow period. And I mean, if an eclipse did really go for as long as a colonial period, like it will fuck everyone up. Like, <laughs> yeah, hopefully yeah. inside out kind of. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to you. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd really like to thank Diego for your time and answering questions and being the film was really incredible. So um, join me in thanking Diego. Thanks to you, Annabelle. <laughs>